Let's pray as uh, we ask God to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, I just uh, pray for humble hearts. I pray for quiet hearts. I just pray for um, stillness. I will hear you. I pray for your words. pray that uh, I won't get in the way. Thank you for this time we've had in worship. I thank you uh, for your Bible, for your word. It's in your name. Amen. So we're in this Hebrew series, and we're starting in uh, Hebrews 12 uh, this morning. And what we're going to start with is this race metaphor as we get to Hebrews 12. Before we do that, I thought that giving a little context, giving a little background, reminding us exactly what's happening in this book will be helpful as we come to this race metaphor. So let me ask you guys, who is the original audience for this book? There we go. You guys, Hebrews, right? It's Hebrews, right? So what is happening in this book is that we have a bunch of people from Judaism who have now said Christ is the Messiah, Christ is the only way, and have started off really great. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 says this, don't ever forget those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remain faithful even through, even though it meant terrible suffering. So what's happened? They're from Judaism. They've embraced Christ and said, we're going to go with you, Christ. We're going to run this race with you. But what's happened? They've come up to some hard times. They're facing some criticism. They're facing pressure to turn back to Judaism. And some of them are thinking about doing that. So the writer of Hebrews comes and opens up chapter 12 and basically pleads with them, stay in the race, persevere, endure. And he does it in terms of context of character. Take on Christ's character. So let's begin in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 this morning. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. I have to tell you, when I was younger, I had a love-hate relationship with this metaphor, this race metaphor, and I'll tell you why. Because I think as Christians, we use this type of thing, persevere, endure, generally when times are hard, generally when someone's going through a rough time. And when I was younger, there were some trials that I went through. And when someone, a good, meaning, well-intentioned person would come up and say, you know what, George, keep on keeping on, keep the faith, run the race to the end, because you know what, George, it will build character in you. Now, I'm going to preface this thing that I'm going to tell you because I came up with a response to this. I'm going to preface it with telling you that when I was young, I really thought that I knew everything, okay? So when someone well-meaning would come up in the midst of my trial, in the midst of my hard time, and tell me that my trial would produce character in me, my response to them would be, you know, character is overrated, right? 
I think if we do this and we limit it, the race to just hard times, and in that context of our spiritual life, then we're really limiting how we're going to live. The race is a good analogy. Our spiritual life is a marathon over time. I get it. I like it, okay? It is good. We are going to have to train in the spiritual disciplines. We are going to have to take a rest, stretch it out in the spirit, right? I get it. It's good. But I want to look at it in context of what these two verses are actually talking about. So we're going to go back to Hebrews 11, and then we're going to continue on in Hebrews 10, because it's much, much more than this, just this race thing. It talks about how we can maintain in the race. Because when we just do two verses and take them out of context, and we just have this paradigm for how we're going to live, and it's a race, and it's endure, and it's persevere, what happens is somehow we start to do that in our own strength because it's something that we have to overcome. And somehow we're going to do it on our own. That's not what we want to do. Because what we're going to find out is that not only are there a bunch of people that went before us, that are cheering for us, that are saying, keep on going, I'm with you, I've done it before, and we can take encouragement from that. We have a father that is right there also cheering saying, look, that's my girl. Look at how she is running. He's so proud. Telling everyone, that's my boy. Look at what he's doing. Look at the character that's building up in him. Look at how he's completing the race. And one other thing, the whole point of this message, okay? If you take nothing else away, I'm telling you the point. And if you say you want to be done right now, we can. Here's the point. You are not running this race by yourself. You cannot run this race by yourself. We are looking to how to run this race with Jesus Christ. That's the whole point, okay? This passage is a template. It has become a template for me on how we can persevere, how we can endure, how we can build character. But I have to tell you something. Sometimes my motivation isn't always there. Terry and I have started running 5K together. We've been doing it for about a month. Spring coming up. The kids run around. uh, They don't run around. They ride their bikes with us. We go down to the loose line. But I have to tell you, some days when it's time to run, I'm a little bit happy that it's raining. Yeah? (laughs) So I don't have to run. If I can use a metaphor of my own, There's some days as I'm moving out and I'm running this race, this spiritual race, sometimes I'm a little bit happy when I can opt out spiritually. I believe with all my heart in the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of our faith. The greatest commandment, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who else? Yeah, each other. Love your neighbors as yourself. So there's this part with God from John 15 if I'm reigning in the vine and I'm running and rolling with him and I get that right somehow my love for God must not translate into ignoring the needs of others if I got this right somehow this has to come along I am loving others and I think practically it's nice to say love right but love is a big word and it's a big concept And if it doesn't translate into our everyday lives, then it really has no meaning. So how does love express itself? 
Love primarily expresses itself in serving others. That is the mandate that Jesus put out for us. That is how he lived. You look at how he moved. He was serving others. I believe service is a spiritual gift. I do not have the spiritual gift of service. But I believe because of the greatest commandment, it's a spiritual mandate. I am to walk the road of relationship and development with people. I'm to give of myself so that other people are better. I'm called to show people, not just in my words, but in my deeds, that Christ is who he says he is. I'm called to walk the same road as Jesus. I'm called to die to myself so that others can live. That's what we're talking about this morning. That is Christ's character. Ultimately, that's the heart of this race metaphor, what the writers of Hebrews is talking about. Paul uses this too. And Paul and the writer of Hebrews both use this race metaphor at a time to address an early church when it is costing them something to bear Christ's name. There has always been and there always will be a cost to discipleship, a cost to running this race with Christ. The race metaphor almost explicitly talks about this marathon mentality. This isn't a 5K race, yeah? It's a marathon. And what's going to happen at mile 7? You start to cramp up a little bit. At mile 15, your shins are just going to be on fire, right? And as you're really, really pushing yourself, what happens at mile 22? Maybe some dry heaves, right? Some not pretty stuff. Character is bearing Christ's name. We are called to have the same character of Christ. Back to Hebrews, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For me, there's always been a tension with this, because practically, I ask myself, if my faith cost me nothing, then could I legitimately say that I have faith? Here's the tension part. As I move out, as I die to self so that others can live, and I'm dying with my time, I'm dying with my energy, I'm dying with my emotion, really investing in people, and not just people in my inner circle, but people outside my inner circle, here's what can happen. A little question starts to creep up in my heart because of the cost. I start to ask myself, haven't I served enough? Haven't I given enough? Haven't I done enough? What more do you people want from me? What more do you want from me, God? And I have to tell you, I don't think this is a big secret, but I'm a sinner. In my sinful nature, I have one of two reactions, and I've done both of these when I'm moving out and showing God's love to other people. What happens when the race is too hard as a sinner? Sometimes what I'll do is take a break, and I'll say, hey, look at me, everybody. Look at how I'm serving the kingdom. Look at all the cool ways I'm loving other people for Jesus. Aren't I awesome? A little self-glorification. That is not cool. The second way that I react as a sinner, and I wrestle with this, is when I feel like people are draining my energy, draining my time or circumstances, what happens in my heart is I start to resent the circumstances in my life that 
are taking from me. And what's worse, and I've done this, is I start to resent the people that God has called me to serve. That's why for me, a pep talk about endurance and perseverance and running the race in the metaphor alone and having some pastor up here egg you on, I'm encouraging you, not egging you, but having that and saying this is what you should be doing and keep on keeping on doesn't work for me because it may work in the context surrounded by all these lovely people, but what's going to happen tomorrow when I'm out there on my own? Yes, I can overcome. Yes, I can run the race a little bit. Yes, I'll stretch it out, maybe make it to Tuesday. But by Wednesday, if I'm trying to do this in my own strength, what's going to happen is I'm going to falter and I'm going to quit and I'm going to pray for rain. Here's what we look when we look at the context of Hebrews. We're called to three things. We're called to belong. That's the love of the Father, the love of people around us. We're called to believe. That's our response. And we're called to become. This is what makes up our godly character. You are first loved. You are loved from the Father. You're called to belong in a deep way, in deep community. Believing is our response to that, and this is easy. All we have to do when God shows up and says, you know what, you belong, I love you so much, all you have to do is say yes. I accept that. That is your response. Christ tells us in John 1 that we are God's beautiful children. Claim that promise. But also don't leave it there. Belief has necessarily a horizontal part to it. Because we say we believe Jesus is who he says he is, then we're going to live like him and we're going to love others. Because if we have this vertical dimension right, if we are in sync with God, if we are walking with God, if we are racing with God and other believers, if we profess that we love God, then God is going to ask you to love someone else. He is going to ask you to serve someone outside your inner circle. It's going to happen. And when you start to love someone, when you start to put their needs above yours, when you see something wrong in the world and you say, no, that's not right, that's not God's design, and you step into that problem and that cause, that is when you're going to need this belong aspect more than ever. You're not racing alone. You are loved, so you love others, but you wrestle. And sometimes when you're serving and you're out there, you're going to fail. There is going to be a cost. And that's part of the become of this calling. When you feel loved and you feel like you belong, you can move into the second, believe. And when you believe, your words must be actions. And that's the call to become. So let's start with the call to belong. And let's pick it up in verse 4 of Hebrews 12. God disciplines his children. In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as son. In the context of our Hebrew series, we're talking about character, and I believe these three callings, belonging, believing, becoming, 
are all about character. This is a better character, and this character is available to us today. But I want to say something before we even get into this. Because we think in straight lines. We tend to view everything as linear. That is not what we're doing with these three callings. It's natural because there's a start, right? And then there's that middle place of the race, of the marathon, where you get your second win. And then there's a finish. It's a straight line. We cannot do that as we come to these three callings. We belong, we believe, we become. But they're all tied together like so many other aspects of our faith. We can't think that we have one mastered. And then we're finished and moved on to the next characteristic. It's not a checkbox. When Jesus talks about our faith and when he talks about how we live it out practically, he does not do so in a linear fashion. It's not even a circle. It's like one big sphere that's all plunked down at the same time. This is how he describes the Trinity. He says, Jesus, Father, Spirit, plunked down, same thing, same time. But we tend to think in straight lines. It's how we approach church. We think about evangelism, right? Discipleship, and then issues of justice. We think of evangelism and discipleship and issues of justice as very separate things, but they're not. Jesus clearly teaches that evangelism, discipleship, and caring for and serving those around us, specifically those in needs, the poor, are the same thing. If you're not doing one, then you're not doing anything, any of them. The same thing here. We must not look at this as a straight line in this race metaphor. We belong, we believe, and we become all at the same time. And here's why. Because two of the heroes of my faith did become. They moved out into this become. Mother Teresa, as she was caring for people, the further she moved out, as Paul would say, into the regions beyond, the more alone she felt. The more she felt like she didn't belong, and she would write and tell her inner circle, it seems like God is silent, and I'm on my own. C.S. Lewis, when he described this experience, he would said he described it as like a house, walking up to a house. Not only are the lights off in the house, and not only is the door locked, but when you knock on the door, it seems like it's been silent for a long time and question whether or not anyone was ever home. As you start moving out, this is crucial. Because when you get out there, when you start living and racing with Christ, you're going to need to feel belonging more than ever. Here's the truth about me, okay? I feel like an outsider just about everywhere I go. I don't feel like I belong. I walk into a room and I say to myself, you know what? I really don't fit in here. And I know some of you are thinking, that's very true, George. Not quite right. <laughs> I know that I take a little bit of translating. That's why I married Terry, because she translates me. The, my kids and Terry together have been working in this, and it's been a little bit difficult for them, but they've gotten into the habit of trying to concisely, succinctly say things about me that if you saw that and you read that and if all that happened, you would know the essence of who George is, okay? Helping translate me. I appreciate it because it saves me a lot of words, right? I don't have to tell you guys everything. Here's what they've done. 
they have started buying me T-shirts, right? T-shirts with little sayings, some they come up with, some they put on there. So I've come and I've shared two T-shirts. I'm going to share two T-shirts with you this morning. And these will translate me. These are basically at the heart of who I am, the essence of George, okay? You guys uh, know those uh, at work? Sometimes they have those counters and they say 11 days without any accident, right? You know what I'm talking about? 11 days without any accident. This one has a counter on it to introduce it and it says zero, okay? So here's the first one. This is the heart, the essence of George, my family's attempt to translate me. This one says it's counter zero days without sarcasm. Okay? I told you I didn't have the spiritual gift of uh, service. I do have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, okay? That's in Romans somewhere if you want to look that up. The second one gets to the heart of how I feel like I don't belong. Please don't take any offense to this. If you have invited me to a party or a social gathering where there's some people, I'm an introvert. Um, I don't generally express things out loud. So, I don't know. The, how do I say it? I'm an introvert. Big parties, social gatherings aren't really my thing. Don't take offense. If you have invited me, guaranteed, I, use, I show up, but guaranteed during the week, sometime during that week, I have thought in my head, is there any possible way I, I can cancel this? Okay? No offense, all right? That's just who I am. So here's another one, and this one gets right to the heart of me feeling like an outsider pretty much everywhere I go. This one says, and this I think was my kid's idea. This one says, hey, sorry I'm late. I didn't want to come. All right? <laughs> So this one, I generally wear every Monday morning at staff meeting, yeah? (laughs) I tell you this because I know what some of you are thinking, right? George, you're a pastor. You're an outreach pastor. This is obviously... (laughs) Don't tell anybody, all right? I somehow... But your tendency when you think about me is that this is probably natural for you, right? This is probably a good thing that you just do naturally. I'm telling you that it's not natural for me. It's counterintuitive. It goes against every instinct I have. I want to live for self. I want to be comfortable. But it's my mandate, so it's intentional. My mandate is to make other people feel like they belong. Show them the love of Christ. So I intentionally put myself in uncomfortable situations. That's the tension part. How can I make others feel like they belong if I don't feel like I belong? So my relationship with Jesus, the vertical, has to be on all the time. And that, the Father, even through discipline, that's awesome because I can step outside myself. And I can help show others how much the Father loves them. Discipline is a way that helps me. I already told you that I'm a sinner. God corrects me. Usually shows me that my critical spirit does not fit most contexts. Does that through other believers. Does that through the Spirit. The Spirit, He corrects me all the time. Convicts me. And my response is to believe. My response is not to have a hard heart. My response is to repent. 
I think repentance should be a regular part of our Christian life. If we're serving, if we are practically loving people, if it's part of our DNA, if we're going to love others because we love God and God is mandating that we do it, the first step is almost always repentance. And I would caution you this morning, if you're moving without repentance, if you feel like you don't have anything to repent for, then I might change how you pray. I might look at Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, Dave goes through and he's worshiping God and telling God how awesome he is, and that gets down a little bit further, and he realizes there's some people that are dishonoring God's name. So David naturally says, how is this happening? And he even prays against some of those people. But then what David has happened has changed my prayer life because as he's judging all these other people, as he's saying, God, come against them, he's like, wait a minute. Maybe there's something in my heart. And so he prays to God, search me. Know any wickedness in me. Know my anxious thoughts and then show that to me, God. If you pray that prayer, that is a prayer that God will always answer. And when you get the answer, don't have a hard heart. Repentance leads to a soft heart. You need a soft heart to believe, and you need a soft heart to become. You cannot become the woman God wants you to be. You cannot become the man God wants you to be unless you feel loved and you belong first. And as only being loved and belonging that we're able to do the becoming in life, And because this is one big sphere that Jesus lays down, belonging, believing, and becoming all at once, and because I don't have the spiritual gift of serving, the most important thing is that when I'm out there, I'm honest. Because I think we have this mentality in life, and I think we bring it over to our spirituality, we have this mentality that it's better to look good than to actually feel good. And what happens when we're out there moving on, on our own and we think about this in a linear fashion, we say, you know what, I've done the belong thing, I've done the belief thing, I'm out here trying to become, and we're on mile 22 and we're all cramped up. And we're not honest with the body of believers, we're not honest with ourselves, we're not honest with God, and we're wrestling and we're doing it on our own. The major reason why you will not become the man or woman you're supposed to be is shame. What happens is that instead of admitting that we don't have it all together, we spend our time and energy trying to pretend that we have it all together, faking it, wearing a mask, acting like we've got it all together. But deep down inside, you know you don't. I don't want to shock anyone this morning, but you know what? Everybody else knows you don't have it together. God knows you don't have it together. All your friends know you don't have it together. And we are just here patiently waiting for you to admit that you don't have it all together, right? My friends tell me all the time, you know what, George? You're just not that cool. (laughs) That's fine. I appreciate that. If you do not think, I need restoration through repentance, then you're the one who really does need to be restored. You are the one who needs to repent. Because everybody needs to grow. And you will not grow until you can admit that you don't have it all together. So the first step in living for others is repentance. 
Now, I think it would be irresponsible for me to gloss over this section without doing a brief exposition on suffering because there's some tough stuff here in Hebrews 12 in the context of this race, particularly when we start talking about God's discipline. And in the NIV, it actually talks about punishment. Because not everything is going to be good all the time. We live in a fallen world where death has come. And because sin has entered through our original choice to say, you know what, God, I don't want to belong. I don't want to believe. I want to do this on my own. This passage of Hebrews is talking about discipline. And there's a theology where people believe that God blesses those who obey him, and maybe God punishes those who disobey. What do you do with the suffering in your life? You love God and you're a good person, so why are you suffering? And I bring this up because I think our natural tendency is when we've been on this path for a while and we are paying a cost and there's suffering, we start to ask the questions, why? And we start to run around a why racetrack. We want someone to blame. We want to know why. And our tendency is to ask, is God punishing me? I could give you some pat theological answers for suffering. I think as Christians, we have those. And often we tell people those pat answers in the midst of their deepest pain, in the midst of their sorrow. But I don't think those work on an everyday basis. What do I do with the friend that came to me and said, George, I just got diagnosed with brain cancer. Is God disciplining me? I don't understand. Or sitting across at breakfast, eating eggs, and my friend with tears in his eyes said, George, I don't understand. I've been doing everything right. We lost another baby. Is this God's plan for our lives? How do I answer from this text? What does this text say specifically? Does the discipline of God in verses 3 through 11 mean punishment? Are we being punished when we are persecuted or when we are sick or troubled? Here's the answer from this book. Hebrews teaches us that Christ died to bear our sins. Hebrews 9.28 says this. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Christ bore the punishment for our sins. Isaiah 53.5 says this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Therefore, it is wrong to think the pain of what happens to us now is God punishing our sins a second time. As though they get punished once with Christ's death, and then they get punished again with our suffering. To do that, to hold that theology, that view of suffering, dishonors the suffering of Jesus Christ. Instead, we ought to think of the suffering of Christ as changed our suffering into something different. Just like the death of Christ has changed death into something completely different. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-five says this, O death, where is your victory? Death Where is your sting? Jesus changed death, and the suffering of Christ for us has taken the punishment out of suffering. So what then is left? How do we define it? If the suffering, if punishment is taken out of it, I think the answer is in trust. Trusting our Father more deeply. Trusting Jesus Christ 
more deeply, I think, is the hope of the cross, recognizing through repentance that we are redeemed. It's going deeper. It's wrestling with God, and it's going deeper into Jesus Christ and knowing that he's got us. We live in a fallen world of death and disease, but that is not God's design for you. In fact, you need to remember that in the midst of your deepest pain, your deepest loss, that God is there with you. John three sixteen. He loved you so much that he sent his only son to die with you, that if you believe, you will not perish and go to heaven. Jesus understands the pain more than anyone. Because of the cross, he's the only one that can meet you there. He suffers with you. His heart breaks with you. I could not serve a God that's somehow immune to pain. And we don't. Because of the cross, Jesus suffered more than I could ever imagine. And what I found in my life, when I'm at my lowest, in the midst of all that, that's where Jesus always meets me. And he's always tender, and it's a gift. And I can confidently say that I am a beautiful child of God. I know my Father loves me. I believe this because I belong. So I continue on the race of becoming more like Christ. That's character. We are called to believe. And to do this, I want to go back to Hebrews 11. And we're not going to read through it, but there's a whole list of people that God says, you know what? These were the people of faith. These are the people, the witnesses, because chapter 12 starts out, there's a cloud of witnesses right behind you. He says, you know what? These are the people that are cheering for you from the stands. You can take heart from the people that have been before, Noah and Moses and Abraham and even David, Rahab's up there. What's unique about these and what reinforces this part to me is that you look through that list, every one of those people, and this is why I love the Bible, because the Bible is honest. Every one of those people had sin on display for everyone. Every one of those people messed up miserably. But every one of those people repented and said, God, where would you have me go? And you know what God says about these people? He concludes in Hebrews 11, they think so highly of them, them running this race, that the world was not worthy for them. He writes about the race and says, this is our encouragement. These people went out there, Mother Teresa fell alone, C.S. Lewis is questioning, that gives me heart. There have been people there before me. They are witnesses to perseverance. Here's another passage. Philippians 3. And this is a classic one about the race metaphor. And I want you, before I read this, to remind you who wrote this. This is Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, okay? So let me more emphatically say it. This is a guy who helped write the Bible. This is what he says. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or I already have reached perfection. So here's a guy that wrote part of the Bible and he's going, I don't have it all together. I'm not saying I already achieved this. I'm not saying I've already done this. I'm not saying I'm perfect. He's not. But what you find from Paul is that he believes, and he believes because he's first love, and he belongs. And what you see is that Paul never, ever tries to do it in his own strength. He's so far out there, as a matter of fact, he admits he can't do it with his own strength. So he's always inviting Christ into his life. And he's saying, you know what? I can't do this. This is yours. Take this from me, God. And then what he does? He thanks God. 
He thanks Jesus for the privilege of being able to serve the kingdom in a really cool way. Called to become. Eugene Peterson, Eugene Peterson has said, there's a great market for religious experience in our world, but there's very little enthusiasm for the slow, patient acquisition of character and virtue. Virtue. He's right. Becoming takes time. We need patience. We need to keep circling back to belonging and believing, but what's more, we need to know in our hearts that belonging, believing, becoming are all the same thing at the same time. And I want to conclude, leave you with one final thought about this call to become. It comes from the Gospel of John in the New Testament. You're probably very familiar with this passage. It comes from John 6. And Jesus feeding the multitudes, he's feeding the 5,000. And what happens is he takes a little boy's lunch, takes five loaves, splits them up, takes two fish, blesses them, gives it to the disciples. The disciples start passing it out. And what's really cool is that John tells us the miracle was not just that everybody ate, but everybody ate as much as they wanted. I love Jesus. I love Jesus at the social interactions. He lived life with people. He rejoiced. You may remember that his first miracle was turning water into wine. I just want to tell you guys, if you invite Jesus to your party, and I know he's there, I will probably come, okay? Jesus is awesome. He's rejoicing. He's doing all this teaching. The next day, the crowd gets into some boats and they cross the lake, right? They're looking for Jesus. They track him down and they say, would you do another miracle for us? This is telling. Is this how we pray? Is this how we approach Jesus? Will you do another miracle for us? Jesus knows their hearts and he replies like this. The only reason you came and found me today was because I fed you yesterday. Life is more than food. And so he goes on to teach them about why he came. He goes on to tell them the meaning of life, why we're here, and how we can walk with Jesus in this race and do things for the kingdom. And what happens? The people gather around him. The response is, this is a hard teaching. And then verse 66 of John 6 is probably one of the most tragic verses in the Bible. It says this. From this time on, many of the disciples turned back and would no longer follow him. A set. Jesus is there preaching. He's giving a message and he's saying, this is what life is all about. This is what it means to walk with me. This is the cost of discipleship. But this is where we're going and this is how redemption is going to come to the world. I'm telling you. And the response is, it's hard. We're out. And so Jesus looks at the 12 disciples that he called and says, what about it? Are you going to leave me too? I love Peter. I think Peter is my favorite because Peter is all heart. Yeah, he messes up a lot, but he does so out of a place of heart. He's out there and he's trying. He talks before he thinks, but he is all heart. I imagine at this point when Jesus asks this, there's a kind of pause. There's a kind of silence. And then Peter comes in with his response. I love his response. He just says, Where else will we go? You alone have the words of life, and we know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. Where else will we go? 
With the one and only life that God has given me, I will persevere. No matter where it leads me, no matter where the journey takes me, no matter what circumstances come in my life, I have cast my lot. I will follow Jesus for the rest of my life, the rest of my days. I will not follow him because he feeds me. I will not follow him because he blesses me. I will not follow him because I think he has a good formula to make me comfortable in my life. I will follow him because he is who he says he is. And where else would I go? Like Peter, as a church, we can say, we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You alone have the words of life. Hebrews 12.2 For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus looked to the finish, and so should we. From the parable of the talents, it clearly teaches that we are going to stand before the Father someday. Whatever we've suffered, whatever trials we've gone through, whatever costs we have paid, can you imagine standing before him and how that will be outweighed by the joy of hearing these words? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful daughter. Well done, good and faithful son. So whatever you're going through, that is where we will be. It will, it will pale in comparison. Here's your hope. Because many of you are trying to become, trying to fulfill the call to become in your own power and in your own completion. Don't do that. Invite Jesus into it. It's not going to happen like that. We can say from our hearts, we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You alone have the words of life. That's the race. If you understand that simple statement, that is the race. That is belonging, believing, and becoming all at once, the sphere. And take this hope, which you don't get finished in this life. God is going to call to completion. Philippians 1 has this great promise. I am sure that God who began the work, the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on that day when Jesus Christ comes back again. That's going to be a day. Face to face with Jesus Christ, we will be transformed to be like him. That's such good news. I am not who I ought to be. You are not who you ought to be. We are not a fraction of what we could be. But God says, that's okay. I'm taking my time. I'm cheering with you at every stage. Jesus says that I am with you now. Take every step with purpose because one day, God is going to finish what we didn't. You can be changed instantly into his likeness if you have put yourself into his hands. That's going to be a day. Belong, believe, become. Make us more like you, Jesus. We want your character. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You alone have the words of life. Amen.